Welcome to Control the Controllables. My name is John McGahan from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland, and I'm here with my co-host, Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain. Together we have created a podcast, bringing some of the top tennis athletes and tennis coaches from across the globe together. We hope you enjoy our next episode. Welcome to episode 43 of Control the Controllables. Today, today's episode is Mike Dixon. Mike Dixon's been a sports journalist for the last 35 years and specifically working at the Daily Mail over the last 30 years. He's predominantly been involved in tennis and is a very recognisable figure in British tennis where he's written stories from Tim Henman, Greg Rosetsky, Jeremy Bates, all the way through to Andy Murray and now Dan Evans, Kyle Edmund, Heather Watson, Joanna Conta, to, to name the many British players that he's had close relationships with. He gives us some fantastic insight to how those relationships work. Do they always like what he writes? Do they even read what he writes? Uh, we'll find out about that. Uh, we'll get his opinions on how the world of sports journalism is going to work and how it's developing, especially in some challenging times. And real a favourite of mine, he was in the Wimbledon press box when Andy Murray won Wimbledon in 2013 and he turned with the fists to the press box. Mike talks through how that felt and also a conversation that he's had with Andy on that. Uh, it's it's a fantastic listen. Uh, Mike speaks incredibly well, as I'm sure you would imagine for for a journalist. And and I'm really thankful that he gave us his time. And I'm sure you guys will enjoy the episode. So over to Mike Dixon. So Mike Dixon, a big thank you for coming on to the show. Welcome to Control the Controllables. Hello, Dan. Hi. Nice nice to speak to you. It's, and for, for our listeners, Mike, um, so Mike Dixon, there's probably a few Mike Dixons in the world and there's a few in the tennis world. So this is, this is sports journalist Mike Dixon, uh, 35 years as a journalist, 30 years at the Daily Mail. Um, and in the tennis world, I know when I look back, Mike, even to kind of my playing career, I remember back in Miami in 1996, um, meeting you. We were over there for the Lipton Championships as a, a bit of a training camp and Tim Henron was playing there. So you've certainly been, uh, you've been in the tennis world for a long time. Uh, yeah, that was kind of my, that was sort of my first innings in tennis actually. Right. I've done a few different things uh, since then. I, I, I actually, uh, I was the cricket correspondent for nine years pretty much. Um, yeah for a period uh, after that. And I, I mean, I've been very lucky, really. I've had quite a varied career. I've, I've really pretty much covered every sport. I'm not sure I've ever done darts. That's possibly the only sport I've, I've never done. So, uh, but, but tennis has been my, sort, I suppose, my kind of bread and butter since, since certainly since, um, you know, I've got onto the Daily Mail. Uh, I, I actually started and just on my local newspaper as a news sort of cub reporter, if you like. Yeah. Um, I sort of did came up the old-fashioned way, really. Uh, sadly, it's a it's a route into journalism that doesn't really exist anymore because of the the decimation of local papers, um, which is a bit sad. Um, 
but anyway that's kind of the way the way i did it it's probably people do it different ways now but um but certainly yeah it's fair to say that that tennis has kind of been my you know a fairly constant factor yeah well to, to the listeners with a good ear they would have picked up you saying that was when i started my innings in tennis so there's obviously a passion for cricket in there as well that you use in such terminologies. Well, I, I say kind of first innings. It is a cricket. I suppose you could say it was the first set, I suppose, as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do. It, it, it's certainly true for me anyway. And actually, it's true, I think, for most kind of sports journalists that uh, it's quite rare that you find somebody who's only interested in, in one sport. You know, I mean, I, growing up, was... Uh, you know, I just love sport, you know, and uh, used to play lots. Sadly, I'm not in a physical state to play as much stuff as I would like now, really. But, um, you know, I, I, I like all sports. But obviously, tennis is, uh, you know, very much, uh, you know, it's the one that's kind of been a huge in interest to me. Um, but it would but be wrong for me to say this. actually the only thing I'm interested in. Yeah, and, and I think for a, for a sports enthusiast to... To be able to write and be around such amazing sport and events, and one of the things I've loved about doing this podcast is showing that, well, tennis is a vehicle, but also sport is a vehicle into many different things and different ways, and showing lots of different pathways. It must be incredible to have have that had that journey for thirty five years to be to be writing about things that you're so passionate about. Well, I mean, you know, I think it's always great in life to to follow your interest. I mean, I'm interested in plenty of things outside sport as well. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but I, I've always just, I don't know, just always really liked sport. And I'm kind of fascinated by the psychology of it as well, particularly that, you know, the, particularly looking across different sports and you find certain common denominators, uh, you know, amongst really top sports people regardless of whatever technical skills that they have they often have the same or quite quite similar mental characteristics as yeah. well and, and it's kind of an education actually absolutely um to learn i think it, i think it actually helps you covering one sport to have been familiar with with others as well and to have learned lessons from from different sports i think by the way i think it's uh, it's a really good thing for young tennis players to maintain an interest and, and do other sports when they're young. I mean, obviously, tennis is quite an early specialisation sport. Yeah. But I, I think it's, uh, it's a, certainly a healthy thing up to the age of, you know, 14, 15. To, you know, things like spatial awareness and the way your body develops and muscle memory to, to, you know, to learn different movements and different sports, I think, is, uh, is only helpful. Yeah, well, we just need to look at the current, I guess, the current crop of British tennis players. You know, if you see Andy Murray play football, you see Dan Evans play squash, you see him play golf, you know, uh, they tend to, Johnny O'Mara, I believe, is kind of plays off two or so in, in golf. Tim Henry was his scratch golfer, I think, you know. So uh, I'm always a big believer that in all sports, it comes down to controlling time and controlling space. And, and you can almost spot the player. You know, we've got a girl at the academy, Ali Collins, fantastic eye for tennis, but she's a fantastic footballer. And you can see, you can see it from quite a young age. So I, I completely agree with that. Uh, Mike, I'd like to 
2020, there can't be many years you've had like 2020 as a, as a journalist, as a, as a sports journalist. And I, and I know, I think it's easier to jump in, easy to jump into COVID, but if I, if I go back even a little bit back from that, because I, I believe you were in Australia, there was the bushfires that actually were this year. It seems like a lifetime ago, but how has 2020 been for you and how did that start in Australia with the bushfires? Well, I, I and, and a couple of colleagues um, actually went early this year to Australia because it was the inaugural year of the uh, ATP team event, um, which you know I thought was certainly the first year was worth covering. And as you rightly say, there were these bushfires, and there were some mornings you'd wake up in Sydney, and the whole harbour would be sort of caked in this awful smog, um, and that obviously was a recurring theme pretty much till halfway through the uh, Australian Open when thankfully they died down a bit. Um, came back to England and there were terrible floods, if you remember, at the start of the year. Yeah. Uh, so it was like January raging fires, February <laughs> floods, and then March disease. Yeah. So <laughs> kind of interesting um, start to the year. Actually, the last, the last sort of major sports event I covered was... Uh, because I, I do other stuff other than tennis as well, was the Cheltenham Racing Festival, which was uh, about the 10th to the 13th of March. Yes. Um, and it was a, that was really one of the most surreal weeks I think I've ever had because it was almost like the sort of band playing on the Titanic. You know, the, you just had this sense that everything was about to come crashing down. Yeah. Obviously a separate issue whether they should have staged it at all. But... Um, it was you know, very, that was a very very strange week, and actually tennis wise, if you remember, it was the start of that week. Indian Wells was the kind of first domino to fall, yeah. and by the end of that week, pretty much, you know, <laughs> it's just fallen like a house of cards. Really, the whole world of sport. Some tennis events just cancelled midweek that week, and we we haven't seen a ranking event no. since. Um, so yeah, it has been been a very strange year for sure i have to like i uh, i was having a little little look i like to do a bit of research on on our guests and i've thought uh, you often pick stuff up from their twitter feeds you know and i know you're pretty active as, as a journalist you have to be on twitter and there was a picture i came across which i had a big smile on my face and you've brought up cheltenham and it was a picture of of the hand sanitizer dispensers and you wrote on the picture I can't help thinking this is a little bit like farting against thunder. <laughs> and I thought it was, I thought it was a, it was a great comment. So I, I guess you must have, you must have, you've touched on it, but you must have really felt. Did you feel what am I doing here? Even did you were you having those feelings? It was, it was hard to know exactly how to feel at that point. Well, I mean, the, the question at Cheltenham is uh, is absolutely packed and. Uh, I, I, I mean, I remember washing my hands at the time when people were just learning about that. And I was actually getting up about every hour and a half to make sure I washed them because actually there weren't that many hand sanitizer stations around. Um, yeah. And obviously that was very early days. And a lot of this stuff with COVID, you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing. Um, but it, it was a strange week and people are absolutely packed together there like sardines. Um, although already at that week, 
there was a sense of people keeping their distance a bit, and it definitely wasn't as packed as normal Cheltenham's. I've covered quite a few now. Yeah. Um, so it, yeah, it was it was it was a very surreal week, and start you know the beginning of that really very unsettling period. You know, I think we all felt really the sort of second half of March, first week of April, when no one was really quite sure what was going to happen. Yeah, and what's, and what's COVID meant for, for you personally and also, I guess, sports journalism as a general? Well, I mean, you know, personally, it's been quite tolerable, but I'm aware that I, I live in, you know, relatively nice uh, circumstances. Um, I think for, you know, people who are, you know, don't have a house with a garden, it's probably been absolute hell for some people. And, um, you know, taken a, a toll that probably won't become apparent maybe you know for another six months possibly yeah um professionally um it's been strange i mean at times it kind of gets you down when it seems that every story you're writing about is you know will it won't it happen and stuff being cancelled um you know which is yeah it's, it's kind of I, I think there's been more sports news around generally not just in tennis yeah we were all a bit worried it would all dry up you know, but it, it just there's been so much fallout in every sport from this crisis that actually yeah. it's kept sports journalists pretty busy. Actually. Yeah, there's been uh, there's been a lot of hot topics, hasn't there? And it would be it would be good to hear your thoughts on a couple actually. So if we talk about obviously one of the big ones in in tennis has been you know there's there's been. Novak Djokovic and a couple of the guys had said, look, we need the money to start spreading a little bit lower in the game. You know, I think it's a it's a statement that we've all known for a long time and an issue we've all known for a long time. As someone who's really, I guess, tennis journalism happens at the height of the game, really, for the, for the most part. I'm sure, you, you know, you yourself, you've done a great job over the years to kind of try and try and get the lower end of the game into the news as well. What's what's your take on that? As I guess we watch the rich get richer and the poorer get poorer in the sport of tennis. Yeah, I mean it's quite interesting to reflect that actually this kind of rich we poor thing actually started pretty unrelated to COVID in Australia. If you remember, there was the controversy about the qualifiers in Australia yeah. being made to play in the smog and the uh, the yeah. Slo Slovenian girl. You know, she had a sort of collapsed on court. So that, that was kind of a precursor to it. I mean, uh, my sort of take on that is that, you know, everyone can talk the talk, but let's see people walk the walk. You know, will, will the top players, when it comes to it, the acid test is will, be they, will they be prepared to forego these enormous winners' purses and this sort of top-loading of the prize money yeah. to help out those lower down the food chain? Um, I mean, the tournaments, I think, will go along with it, providing the top players kind of give it their yes. blessing. I mean, I think everyone's going to have to get used to the idea of earning less prize money, certainly for the next two or three years. Yeah. Because corporate sponsors and things like that are bound to cut back. Revenues yeah. are going to be down. Um, and, you know, players are probably going to have to suck it up for a couple of years. I, I do think that... Uh, it has been slightly absurd that players, you know, to these winners' purses, which can be, you know, three and a half million dollars or, 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 you know, four million dollars or whatever. Um, I think they have got out of proportion. Um, I mean, what 
obviously what you'd like to see is things like challengers paying a bit more of a living living wage so to speak yeah it is a difficult problem because as you know dan most of them don't make any money they're, yeah. they're kind of often quite charitable ventures funded yeah. by you know, generations or whatever um so it, it, it is a tricky one um but i think you know every crisis has opportunity yeah. and, and possibly one of the opportunities for tennis is to slightly level up the prize money yeah, but I, I think there's a couple of things there for me, mate. One, the first one, I guess there's a coach who spends the majority of my time at the futures and, and challenger level, you know, so I guess that's my my scene or has been my scene for a few years. It's not just the prize money, I think. It's also, it, I think it's the insensitivity of the likes and, and not to jump on Djokovic, but him coming out about the US Open and saying we can't possibly play without having physios, doctors, hitting partners, you know, all of that, the whole team, because the reality of the sport up until probably the top 40, top 50 in the world is you, you're lucky if you're traveling with a coach, <laughs> you know, if you go down to challenger level and futures level, you're lucky if you have five or 10 weeks with a coach on the road and more than likely that coach is doing that for free. You know, that's the, it is a very much a sport of, you know, people coming together and doing what they can and sleeping on couches and, and, and then to hear the top players who are in that position make comments like that. I think it comes across in quite bad taste, really, because I think that there has to be more of an understanding of, of what is happening in the sport. Well, you know, I do think some of the some of the top players are are uh, quite tin-eared about about this sort of thing. Um, some are more enlightened than others. I mean, I suppose what it comes down to is that ultimately this is a very selfish individual sport, and you know, it is the nature of the beast is that you know you've got to look after yourself because no one else really is going to look after you. Yeah. So people people are going to pursue. Uh, their own interests. I mean, one thing I, you know, I, a recurring sort of thought to me in the last few months has been that this whole crisis, uh, uh, and this isn't, by the way, rocket science, but um, it has rather exposed the, the fractured nature of the leadership of the yeah. sport. And, um, you know, we really would be so much better off with a more centralised leadership um, and the problem at the moment is that, is that no one really is in charge. I mean, that's the bottom line. And so therefore you see this splintering of, you know, exhibitions going on everywhere. And yeah. as we speak, things might have changed by the time people listen to this. Um, but, you know, nobody knows whether the US Open is going ahead at this point. We're, we're talking now. Yeah. Um, and there's just this vacuum of centralised leadership. You've got all these different constituencies yeah um the, the the international governing body has become very weak the international tennis federation uh it's you know it's a bit of a mess frankly leadership wise and it the whole thing would be a lot simpler if there was more centralized leadership but you know you, you've got to kind of deal with the world as it is not as you'd want it to be necessarily and what's your personal take on the u.s open you think it should go ahead I'd like to see it go ahead, and I I tip my hat to the USTA for doing absolutely everything to get it on. I think it's yeah. very important that 
tennis does try and keep the show on the road. Um, I actually think it's been great that these individual sort of entrepreneurs have put on, yep. you know, the semblance of normal tournaments um, around the place. Obviously, one or two have been run better than others, to put it mildly. Um, so, but I mean, that's no substitute for the real proper tour, is it? And I think it's important that tennis does everything to try and keep, keep uh, things moving. Um, I've always personally been doubtful that the US Open will overcome the challenges, but I hope they do. Uh, but, I, I, you know, it's clearly a very problematic situation. I'm more optimistic about the, uh, the European events, you know, Madrid, Rome, Paris. I, unless there's some dramatic surge that, you know, in those localities, I think they've got a pretty good chance of going on. Yeah, no, we spoke to uh, to Noah Rubin the other day on the podcast, and I don't know how much you follow Noah Rubin, but he's he, he certainly got some quite strong opinions on things. And in his opinion, tennis has missed a massive opportunity during this pandemic because, you know, what he was saying is, we when will we ever get this period of four months to actually trial different things? And if I go back again to a little bit of research I've done on you, Mike, back in 2011, you, I've, I've, I came across an interview on you saying that you felt tennis needed to be sped up a little bit. You know, that, that it takes too much time. It's not quite grabbing the, the crowds because of the nature of the sport. And that was similar to Noah's point that he believes there should be some different formats. Not with the Grand Slams. Don't touch the Grand Slams. Don't touch... Don't touch the Master Series 1000s. But what he was saying, in reality, no one really cares below that. You know, as much as we'd like to think they do in the tennis world, who really cares who's winning the, the 250 event in Vienna? So why not trial and try different team events and different things that may, maybe grasp the imagination of different people? And, and a bit like what cricket did with 2020, I guess. You know, it maybe grasp the imagination of, of the younger population. What are, what are your thoughts on, on that? Uh, well, it's, it's quite it's quite an open-ended <clears throat> subject, Dan. But it, is. it has it has made me, you know, reflect. I mean, I I've got to say, I, I mean, I think there have been some different formats sort of experimented with in this period. Again, comes back to this leadership thing, not in a very coordinated way, but yeah, people have been trying try different things. You know, I think Jamie Murray did a very good job with the um, Battle of the Brits. I've got to say. I increasingly like this third set champions tiebreak. Um, you know, the, the world's most popular sport by a mile is football, as we all know. And that lasts for 90 minutes. And I've, I've, I've often thought there's a kind of message in there yeah. that, you know, that's sort of the kind of length of a contest that people like. Um, I know people point to test cricket, but that's a whole different rhythm and a different sport. Um, I, I personally am kind of coming more around to that and I, I do think that uh, this issue of dead time is uh, you know something that the game has been very slow to deal with things like these ludicrously long toilet breaks and the sheer volume of them yeah quite interesting when you watch you, you can watch some of these events on Facebook um, and you can actually see the numbers of people watching at any one time. And 
I, I remember seeing this with the Fed Cup when they put the Fed Cup on Facebook. Yeah. When somebody went off for one of these toilet breaks, it, you could actually see the numbers of people leaving the broadcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they often drop by like 25, 30%. I'm amazed the TV companies, yeah. if I can only conclude that they just don't care enough, that they haven't been hotter on this. And yeah. these stops and starts. Um, also been interesting watching the highlights of, you know, during Wimbledon of the older matches, how, of the matches from 30, 35 years ago, you know, how much quicker they were played. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I do, I mean, I, I, I kind of broadly agree with, People who who think that uh, the game, you know, in term, terms of modern attention spans, um, that that it that it does need to be speeded up. Um, I mean, I think there are other ways, by the way, that tennis could make itself more popular. That actually, you need to think more laterally about. Yeah, and what would they be? Well, I think one one big thing. Uh, and, you know, I'm sort of speaking from experience of always trying to take tennis to a mainstream audience. And that, that is, you know, the nature of interest in tennis. It has quite a small, hardcore following that are kind of go deep into the sport. But it has an extremely wide uh, fan base in terms of people who are kind of casually or vaguely interested in it. Yeah. You know, you look at, say, the big names in tennis are incredibly well-known to a very wide audience. Um, but you don't have to go too far down the food chain for it to become quite niche. I mean, I, I do think one, one thing that really does shift the dial is when there are sort of edgy personal rivalries. Um, and, you know, that is the kind of salt and pepper of the game. And, you know, when you can't, you can't sort of tell people to dislike each other but there's no doubt that the dial really is moved when there is a kind of a bit more of a, a personal edge to the to a rivalry and i think sometimes particularly on the men's side you kind of get the impression that it's a little bit of a cozy kind of corporate mates club you know all slapping each other on the back and telling each other how wonderful they are yeah. i'm not sure deep down they feel like that i mean I think yeah. fans want to see people competing with the attitude of, you know, you're trying to take food off my table. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you don't, you don't really kind of get that sense, particularly in men's tennis. It's all a bit deferential. Is so that... I, I think, uh, I, I'm not quite sure how you can engender that, but I think players should be, feel free to express themselves more, you know, and perhaps behave more badly because uh, behave, you know, things like racket throwing, whatever. I mean, I'm not saying that one should do it or tell young players it's a good thing to do, but there is no doubt it kind of turns people on, you know, and it, oh, yeah. tennis is in a battle with other sports, yeah. an absolute battle to the death yeah. for public attention. Yeah. And it can, it can look a bit straight jacketed at times. Yeah, well, if I go last year at Wimbledon, and I, I was there with Evan Hoyt, who Evan Hoyt and Eden Silver had their fantastic run in the mixed doubles. So I was there for work-related reasons. However, I made sure that I got a ticket for one match last year at Wimbledon. And it was it was Rafael Nadal against Nick Kyrgios. 
you know, that was that was the match, that was the ticket. Obviously, we're talking about maybe people want to see the men's and women's final. But outside of the final, I, I believe that was the most watched match during Wimbledon. And that is the good guy against the bad guy. That is the the there's the dislike for each other the you know it's all of those things that you're talking about that that does turn people on about tennis so so how do we and, and obviously Kyrgios gets a bit of stick but I would say I would imagine from a from a uh, a journalist point of view I would imagine he gets the most clicks or he's up there with the top guys when it comes to kind of getting clicks online with different stories how how do we create more of them? And you touched on it there. How does tennis battle against other sports? What can they do to kind of pierce through the other sports within the media? Well, I mean, it always makes me laugh when you hear people saying Kyrgios is bad for tennis. I mean, it's, it's, I'm a, it's absolute rubbish. I mean, I'm not I'm not endorsing some of the dafter things he yeah. he does or or says, but. Um, you know the idea that that you know he's turning people off tennis. I just don't buy that at all. And you're right, he does. You know you, you can actually see the numbers on of clicks on stories and things like that with the internet. Um, that there is a fascination. I personally would like to see Nick actually back it up a bit more by yeah. fulfilling what is an extraordinary talent. Because I think people sometimes overlook the fact that yeah. his talent is off the charts. You know, but you get the whole package. I mean, how you do this, I do think Roger and Rafa, you know, they've obviously done an incredible job driving the sport forward. You know, I, th I think they have slightly, players have taken their lead from this kind of cordiality that they have most of the time um, between them. Um, I, I just think players should be encouraged to, you know, speak their minds a bit more and uh, you know I mean I remember the, the Sharapova uh, Serena Williams match at Roland Garros that never was actually because Serena pulled out injured I mean the anticipation for that was like some I mean sadly it was called off about half an hour or an hour before the start but I mean the anticipation was like a heavyweight world title fight you know it was amazing the uh, attention it got um, I mean, I, you know, possibly have two different locker rooms so people don't have to change alongside each other. If I was a top player, I know part of me would think, well, do I really want the hassle? There may be a player here I've got beef with. Yeah. But do I really want the hassle of having a feud with him if I've got to sit into, like 30 weeks a year changing four spaces along from him in the same locker room? Yeah. I don't know, maybe that's an idea uh, that needs looking at. Um, you know, I'd like to see, I, th I think team events are great, you know, because they sort of engender a slightly tribalistic type interest. Um, there are things that, that, that tennis could do, but the, the sport has to be tireless in looking for, for ways in which it can reach a wider audience in uh, 2020 in the face of huge competition from other sports. I did an interview with... Um, Patrick Moritoglu a few weeks ago, yeah, and he. I mean, a lot of people. He gets quite a few people's backs up, Patrick, in tennis. Um, some people don't agree with him about stuff, but I, I actually think he talks eighty percent. I think there's a lot of sense in what he says and and talking about trying to innovate. Yeah, should never be afraid to innovate. 
No, no, absolutely. Is it though? If as we're talking, it's kind of hitting me. Obviously, where everyone says the media, the media shapes our thoughts. You know, in 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 lots of ways. Yet we're talking about trying to innovate, bring more stars to the table. You know, spread the spread the wealth across the board of the of the sport. However, in the media, you're battling with other sports. And you've probably got four or five girls and guys that you know are going to sell in terms of a story. And, and as journalists, you're under pressure to probably get those clicks, I would imagine, and to show that the story is people want to read. But does that not then just contribute to the fact that Federer, Djokovic, Williams, Sharapova, you know, that these guys then are just the real, those are the household names. And unless we have more household names, there's not the demand and it's hard to then get more finance into the bottom end of the game. So kind of the game needs the media <laughs> to, to help spread that. But I guess the media is fighting with other sports, so it's hard to do that. I don't know if that makes sense. Well, I mean, tennis is in a you know, very interesting position and very unusual position uh, right now and that the men's game have had these three three amazing players and they've but they've obviously there's huge interest in the whole that galactic battle between Djokovic, Federer and Nadal see who can end up with yeah. most Grand Slam titles honourable mention for Andy Murray and the often underrated Stan Varinka in yeah. that as well and obviously Andy has been incredible for British tennis um, yeah. But they've also, the big three have sort of acted as bed blockers, if you like, if you're talking about, you know, compare it to a hospital. Okay. They, you know, they, they're stopping other players establishing their, themselves as stars. Okay. And then on the women's side, there's been this very strange situation. You've got this one absolute superstar, but then you've had this whole spate of players winning a slam, and then everyone hopes they're going to establish themselves as a bona fide superstar, and then they fall fall away. Yeah. Um, I mean, not picky Ostapenko, for example. Darby Muguruza, who is a absolute superstar potentially. Yeah. But you know, for whatever reason, she's had these amazing tournaments, and then you, she kind of sinks without trace. And there's been I'm not sure anyone could, it's not like anybody's fault particularly, but it just that's the way it's been in women's tennis for a while. And that hasn't helped that. So it's been a very unusual uh, scenario for, for, for tennis. I don't think you could ever really knock a situation where you've got this sort of amazing three-way thing between Federer, Nadal and Djokovic, but it's a bit of a downside as well. Yeah, and, and, and on that... I remember I was in I was in US college ninety-eight to two thousand and two. And I remember when I first went out there, the demand in terms of what everyone wanted to watch at the US Open, whether it was ninety-eight, ninety-nine, two thousand, was actually on the women's game and it was on the Williams sisters. You know, they they'd come through. There was then obviously Anna Kornikova at the time was bringing a lot of interest for different reasons. You know, but there was, and then Hingis, I believe, was around as well. But it felt like the women's game really was in 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 great shape in terms of the demand, certainly in the U.S. market. What's what's your take on the big 
argument around equal pay on men and women within tennis. Well, well, you're 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 right that it was a, a sick, a, you know, a cyclical thing, and yeah. that, that, you know, that there was a real high watermark for women's tennis around the time you're referring to, and it and it coincided with a with a with a low uh, watermark possibly for the game because you'd had a certain amount of stars dropping off. You had some quite odd winners um, of the men's game around that time, didn't you? And I think actually, possibly the you know, in a few years' time, we might go through that sort of period in the men's game um, once again. I mean, the equal prize money thing is, you know, it's a it's a very long, nuanced debate and quite an emotive one. Um, I mean, partly there's the economic argument. I think it's absolutely right that slams have equal prize money. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the, the, the tournament's lower than that. I think it is a bit more complex and nuanced, and particularly now with the coming economic issues, um, because you know, I'm afraid I'm quite bearish about the economy of the game below yeah. the Grand Slam, certainly for the next two or three years. Yeah. And people are going to have to cut their cloth uh, accordingly. You know, this was discussed particularly sort of early on in the the crisis in an ideal world you, know, you could see huge benefits of WTA and ATP um, merging and combined offerings media rights and things like that yeah well I've been around a while whether it will actually survive the collision with reality vested interests and selfish interests I'm not so sure, but it would be great to see it happen um, and sort of to bring the game together like that. I'm just not sure in in reality. And I think you may find that the objections would come from sort of a bit lower down the scale of the men's players because obviously the very top men's players have got more money they know what to do with. Yeah. It's, it's kind of less easy to make concessions when you're ranked 75, 80 in the world and you're thinking, well, I may have three years in the top 100 to make as much money as I can. Yeah. It's, it, it, that's going to give you a slightly different viewpoint, possibly. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that the one thing I have to also say, Mike, is, is I think tennis is the leading sport in this. You know, I think there's, if we look at the quality in cricket, golf, rugby, football, it's basically non-existent and it's almost not even part of a, a part of a conversation. You know, so I think I think tennis, I I've had this discussion a lot over the years, and I guess my kind of very shortened version of where I've got to is Wimbledon, US Open, any any kind of men and women's tournament that come together, there's no way of distinguishing who's coming to watch who so it's, it's part of the event part of the event that makes Wimbledon great is there's men and women you know fantastic and any men who are 40 50 in the world that complain about that they ain't there to watch them you know they're, they're there to watch higher level women than, than they are to watch someone 40 in the world so that's that has to be equal and then my thing on it is take men and women away and, and it's what you're touching on there it's if there's a tournament in Austria next week and there's a tournament in Germany next week, 
which if that tournament brings in x amount through media tv money ticket sales whatever it might be then the players should get paid a percentage of that 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 might happen to be a men's tournament it might happen to be a women's tournament and that will that will depend on 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 how things are at that time and who's attracting those sort of those sort of feeds it would be great to think that they could come together and it, it, they could be a kind of global way of working in unison together. And I think even the fact that that conversation's happening shows how much more advanced tennis is than maybe some of the other sports. Um, but let's let's see how it how it all progresses and moves forward over the next few months, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, again, <laughs> without being boring, it slightly comes back to this central leadership, but it. There's no doubt that you know, one of the great strengths uh, of, of tennis has been the fact that it does showcase uh, men, and, men and women. Um, funnily enough, I, I wrote a piece for the Wimbledon programme that no one will have seen. Actually, it went online, in fact, but in terms of it didn't go in the programme yeah. because the programme wasn't there about the, um, the whole advent of women's tennis in the early 70s and the uh, the original they're known as the original nine and it's an amazing story you know it's the the courage that they showed absolutely and uh, to establish it all uh you know it's a remarkable story i'd very much recommend by the way the uh, autobiography of julie heldman who was one of the original nine uh yeah. a really good book about it anyway we digress sorry no, no, not at all. No, I think it's a great. It's a, it's a, it, like you say, it is an emotive subject, but it's a, it's an important one as well. And um, British tennis. Now, my my thing with British tennis, um, I, I again, I I look around. I like to watch things on social media. I I, I like to be with current tennis. And there was a fantastic um, interview that they did with Tim Henman on this kind of all access. WTA, you know, I don't, I don't know if you saw it, but he was, he was talking the other day, and he was saying there was one year at Wimbledon, um, Agassi, Sampras, and Safin all lost, in, on kind of day two, day three at Wimbledon, and and Tim was happened to be in the draw, but he was in the other half of the draw to Agassi, Safin, and and, and Sampras. Yet on the Thursday morning, he came into Wimbledon. And there was all the players were showing them these articles and saying, Tim, have you seen the article? Have you seen this? And he said, no, I don't read the paper. And somebody showed it to him and the headline, I think it was of the mirror. And it said, um, Tim, dot, dot, dot. If you chalk this year, we will never forgive you. <laughs> and this was, on, this was on day three of Wimbledon. So I guess being part of that, and I, and I think you've always written very fairly, Mike, so this is not, kind of bringing you into that same equation but how has that pressure cooker been in British tennis over the years Tim Henman obviously Andy Murray was was a big one as well what was it like to be part of that and and do you think it, it was it's been fair the way that the media has portrayed it over the years well I, I can claim I know that Tim, Tim Henman story I, I was actually covering cricket at the time so I can plead not guilty to that but the um yeah, I, I kind of hear where he's coming from. Again, it, it comes down to numbers, doesn't it? I mean, you know, I, I think Andy was, was incredibly resilient. You know, he was head and shoulders above his peers in British tennis. Um, 
as was Tim for time, although Greg, Greg was around a lot of it. Um, and it, you know, that's why it would be great if we could just get some kind of volume of players. I mean, we're not in too bad a position now. The men's game, you know, with Dan and Kyle um, are up there. You know, Cam Norrie's not that far behind. And hopefully, you know, Andy might have a, a year or two when he's, you know, back, you know, towards the top at least. But it, it, it is difficult. It's not the only country, by the way, where it happens. Um, yeah. You know, I think it is quite pressured for anyone who's sort of the, the great home home. But obviously Wimbledon, which attracts massive mainstream attention, that kind of has a, a huge multiplier uh, multiplier effect. I mean, you've got to say, Tim, Tim couldn't have affected him too badly because his record at Wimbledon was pretty good, wasn't it? You know, and he, About he did have a lot there. I mean, the other side of the coin is that obviously you get huge amount of crowd support at Wimbledon, which, you know, you wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily happen at, say, Flushing Meadows or yeah. somewhere. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm always aware of trying to, you know, freight people with enormous expectations. It's almost, almost like you want to keep them a secret, really, <laughs> yeah, yeah. for as long as you can. Um, and it, it players kind of help themselves, I think, sometimes by how they conduct themselves. It's not, by the way, a reflection on, on Tim, um, who, who had an amazing career. Um, but, it, you know, I think sometimes the way you deal with the media as a player can sort of have, have an effect on that. Um, but I think I said it before, you kind of have to deal with the world as it is, not necessarily how you'd like it to be. Yeah, and do you have you had any run-ins with players that you've kind of they've taken offence to maybe something that's being written, or do the players read it? Do they react to these stories? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that that has happened, and it's part and parcel um, of the job. Um, I remember as as a young journo, a much more experienced colleague saying to me. If you're not upsetting anyone any of the time, you're probably not doing the job properly. Absolutely. Now, that's not to say that I haven't made mistakes or misjudgments, uh, because I have. Everyone does. And these days, with the sheer amount of words that, that one is expected to churn out, uh, you know, it's, it, you're, you're more and more open to, to, to making a mistake. Um, so, you know, I hold my hands up to that. But if you try and... You try and walk the line between being kind of fair, but you're not there as a cheerleader. Yeah. On the other hand, it's it's quite a difficult line, and obviously you, it's further complicated by the fact that you, you know, particularly in a sport like tennis, you kind of it's a bit of a caravan. You see a lot of each other, and you you actually build up relationships and friendships, you know, with players or coaches or whatever. And there are certain people you like. Um, particularly, or I mean, there are obviously a few people you, you're not going to like as well, but you know, that, that kind of human dimension comes into it. So it, it's, it's quite, a, quite a nuanced, complicated process. Yeah. And were you, were you in the press box when Andy won Wimbledon for the first time? Uh, I was, yes. Yeah. Um, what we mean when he, when he shook his fist in the press box? 
So he turned, so yeah, obviously he turned to the press box. What, what was your take on that at the time? Well, I've, I actually, I've asked him about that and he said he was sort of looking for people because he was in the opposite corner to his camp. So he was kind of looking for a few familiar faces. Um, you'd have to ask Andy what exactly, <laughs> what he meant. I mean, that's what he told me, and I don't know, but um, I was there and, I, and I, I can say honestly that I, it was one of the, it, it's seared into my memory that whole, you know, that 13 minute game and him actually winning. It was quite, the most emotional, actually, the most emotional that I felt covering Andy uh, in terms of, was the US Open actually, because yeah. I mean, that was just a, however long the match was, four, four and a bit hours of just gut-wrenching. Yeah. Um, he thought, is he gonna blow it again? And if he, if he doesn't, well, I don't like to use the term blow it, but is he gonna have it snatched from him again yeah. by an amazing player? Literally, the whole print run of the Daily Mail was waiting for the match to end. Right, yeah. Get it? Because it was about nearly 2 a.m. UK time. It was, yeah. So the whole thing was kind of quite emotional to watch and, you know, professionally quite testing as well, getting all the words in the right order and getting it lit. I mean, I literally had to press the button the moment he, the moment he won the match. Um, um, and actually, that that for me probably was the most special moment because it ended. You know, he'd really done it then, and he'd come so close. Um, and I thought, you know, to having lost the third and fourth sets to then sort of rally in the fifth, I thought was just amazing. Yeah. And how I guess from a I guess a logistical point of view, you know, you're at all of these amazing sporting events. But your job, when it when it's your job to get something out and you're under time pressure, are you able to enjoy them? Uh, not well, not really, because obviously you're doing a professional job, and the priority is getting stuff. I mean, New York obviously is a very different challenge to uh, anywhere else because it's five-hour time difference, and that often with the paper is has its own challenges. Um, I mean, try to, I remember the, when we won the Davis Cup, which was another kind of real yeah. standout memory. Uh, you know, I remember I was, I was kind of trying to finish my on, because now we have to write often an online report to go on the whistle. Yeah. And then you have to go back and sort of write a more considered piece for the paper possibly, or for the yeah. online later. And I, I remember mate, I really wanted to make sure I was actually you know, in the stadium for the moment that we won the Davis Cup, because actually the Davis Cup has got a particular sort of place in my heart for whatever reason. I've always really loved it as a competition. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of said to myself, because the Andy thing when he won the US Open and Wimbledon was just so kind of pressurized and massive. I, did, I, I felt I didn't sort of savor it enough. Yeah, yeah. And I really wanted to be there and to, to kind of having having watched us lose to Lithuania six years previously, yeah, yeah. which was probably the Nadir, I really wanted to be there, you know, for the that would to see us win the title. And do you think with Andy obviously winning in 2013 Wimbledon, do you think that's changed the tone 
and the vibe of of British tennis journalism in a little bit. You know, it was almost like for so long there was always an underlying negative feeling to it because I guess it was a pretty negative time. You know, there wasn't, you know, people were falling short. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of players that were getting close. But then I guess Andy coming and doing what he's done. And then there's almost seems like there's a few more that have just naturally gone into kind of the higher ranks without too much fuss. Do you think it has changed the, the, the way that people write on the sport in Britain? Well, you know, I, I do think that outside of the actual sort of tennis constituency, if you like, you know, I think people who maybe casually follow it or who follow other sports and are kind of vaguely interested, they, they sometimes look down on tennis as a bit of a sissy sport, yeah. um, rightly or wrongly, but I think that's how some people do. And I do think one of Andy's achievements was that he really demonstrated to a, you know a very broad audience that what you and i know yeah. which is that tennis is an incredibly hard physical sport that requires an amazing amount of mental and physical attributes i do i do think that that you know his success and the way that people saw his work ethic and his physicality yeah. i think that did bring it home to a lot of people that you know, it's not a sissy sport. It's actually extremely difficult yeah. sport that requires multiple disciplines to be mastered. Yeah. So that, I mean, realistically, the challenge, I think, when Andy started to do well is that <clears throat> sometimes you try and maybe tell a story about someone else or, you know, something a bit less obvious. I mean, yeah, yeah, but what's Andy, you know, it could all be a bit too... Andy-centric, if you like. For yeah, yeah. That, that did happen for a period, and it was a bit of a challenge. Yeah. But I do think also it lifted the whole profile of the sport, you know, and people took it more seriously. And we had, I think media-wise, I think it was a sort of golden age, really, sort of 2011 to 2017 or 18. Yeah. Um, yeah there's no doubt we'll look back on that. And, and by the way, also, there was much else happening in the game there's some amazing stories and uh rivalries and just things happening off the court or you know there, it was a that was a really great period it's not been quite as newsworthy you know in the last couple of years probably right and obviously it's been a very difficult period in andy's career specifically yeah no i mean i think he does he's just so i think the big thing for me with andy is how relatable he is, you know, and I think as people have got to know him a little bit better, you know, I think Tim, as much as I like Tim, and this is not a diss on Tim, he he was the English country garden tennis player. You know, his grandma was the first woman to serve overarm in tennis. You know, it was all very, he, he almost represented everything that people almost thought of tennis, <laughs> You know, that you have to have money, you have to be from, you know, a certain certain part of the country, you know, it's it's a summer sport, it's, it's you know, all of these type of things. Whereas Andy kind of came in with his kind of whinging and mourning, his Scottish accent and he's, you know, a little bit more and I think then he opened up and cried in two thousand and twelve with with losing to Federer in the final. And I think definitely more and more people started to associate with Andy 
Um, and maybe that's just me coming from the northeast that has that opinion. But do you think that British tennis has cashed in on that? And and how do you think of this? What do you think of the state of British British tennis currently? Um, just to go back to your point on on Tim, I do think I, I hear exactly what you say, and it's not not at all Tim's fault. No, I do think Tim elevated Wimbledon. You know, Wimbledon actually went through a bit of a slump in the mid '90s in popularity. I do think Tim sometimes doesn't get the credit, like when he beat Kafelnikov. Yeah. It was quite a watershed moment that in '96, I think, um, and it kind of elevated Wimbledon. That was the start, I think, of Wimbledon growing to kind of where it is now. Yeah. Um, British tennis, um, has it cashed in? It didn't really have the infrastructure, yeah. sadly. I think unlike Germany, when the sort of Becker and Graf boom came along, you know, they had the club infrastructure more in place and to kind of cash in on that. And you, you saw you saw that. Um, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a complicated subject. Um, I mean, the, the basic answer is no, clearly, uh, clearly it hasn't happened. I do think Andy and the, the sort of professionalism of Andy and the Davis Cup success has uh, contributed to a much healthier uh, culture in men's tennis. Um, you know, and you're seeing that with Evo and Kyle and, you know, I mean, you're, there are a few kind of green shoots there. Um, the women's game in the UK, I'm less optimistic about. Really. I mean, I, I hugely admire what Joe Conter has done. You know, she's a uh, very much her own person and she's worked incredibly hard. But, you know, you look beyond her and obviously there are one or two promising players. But, you know, sort of looking at what happened last week with the Progress Tour, you. you yeah, I don't think it augured particularly well. That's at the elite level. Yeah. You know, grassroots level, I think tennis has actually had a bit of a boom from the corona crisis. Yeah. Tennis and golf, grassroots, has really been helped by the fact they were back so early. And I think both sports yeah. have seen, uh, you know, quite a dividend almost by accident from a, this, obviously, this tragic crisis that we're going through. Um, you know, whether you can translate that into elite players, it's really, I mean, time will tell. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not a massive fan of the uh, LTA academies, to be honest. Um, don't really see much of a coherent performance policy at the moment. Um, so I think probably, yeah, we're going to see some outliers come along, you know, these mavericks. Top, top tennis players, to me, I don't know if you agree, tend to be mavericks, you know, and um, I think that's what we'll continue to see is some maverick players kind of coming through at the top level. Um, and I think the same, Mike, on that. There's shortage of numbers still. I, I think, actually, a lot of top tennis coaches are as well. You know, I know, I mean, I've been in Spain now for 10 years, and I'm a big believer that systems don't really create tennis players. You know, it's yeah. little it's little individual coaches or, or groups of coaches that set certain cultures. 
you know, and that's very much the way the Spanish world works. There's probably there's probably three hundred tennis academies in Spain. You know, yeah, it's often it's often, and I've said this to people at the LTA. It's kind of surprised me that if they want to be in the academy game, they haven't bought a tennis academy in Spain with an international school somewhere nearby. Because I just I don't think that this is a very convoluted subject, but you know, clearly the evidence is it's not very easy to produce top-class tennis players uh, in the UK. I would add, by the way, um, what I said earlier, I do think there are more, I think it's quite encouraging that there are more British coaches seem to be doing well in the top-level international game. Um, you know, you see quite a proliferation now of playing, you know, coaches who perhaps the public don't necessarily know their names, but they're coaching some very good caliber players and I think at some point I'm hoping that that will kind of pay a dividend for the for the wider British game. Yeah and that's, and that's one of the points Dan Evans made on the podcast as well that he he feels over the last five years or so now there's people in positions that have been there and seen it and and the more that these the, the British coaches get that experience and the more people that have either played at that level or coached at that level, then the more likely it is that we're able to keep creating more and more, more and more players to do that. But I, I've always thought the two things is one, a, a Spanish academy and almost having uh, placing coaches in, in Spain. And the second one for me, I've always thought with a US college as well, you know, of actually having one or two US colleges that almost... They're almost placing placing coaches in and and using the U.S. college system, which has obviously bared the fruit of you know Cameron Norrie, you know Paul Job now coming out, you know, and I think there's there's a couple of fantastic kind of supporting pathways there to go alongside. Which for me personally, and I'm not involved with the LTA system, but it seems to me like things, and I can speak more on the men's side than the women's side because I've got more experience in it it feels as if there's a much stronger culture now than there than there ever has been but using those those other couple of support systems could really help as well yeah I mean you know general culture and playing conditions uh I'd agree with that you know as opposed to say systems I mean you mentioned Spanish tennis um you know, I think it's always going to produce because of the weather, the clay courts, the access. It's going to produce good. It's like Australian cricket. I mean, Australian cricket will have its ups and downs, but the culture yeah. and the, the whole infrastructure of the game there, they are going to produce good cricket, outstanding cricketers. Yeah. On a, obviously, some cycles lower than others, but they are. And Austria is going to produce great skiers, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Partly because they got the mountains, you know, obviously, but you know that that's when you look at stuff, you, you kind of that's the sort of thing you have to be looking, yeah, you know, looking more deeply at. I think. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and with that culture, I mean, it's a whole podcast in itself. But just one quick thing on it: the culture in Spain, it's the tournament culture, it's the it's the attitude and work ethic culture. You know, all of these things that. They're so strongly ingrained now that if you turn up to Spain and you don't give your best in a tournament, you look like a prat. <laughs> you just like kind of like looked at like what what you're doing, 
you know, if you're not going vamos after every point and really getting pumped up. And I think that's that's now set so strong. And what you have is obviously Rafa's got his academy, David Ferrer's got his academy, but those guys are genuinely in the Spanish tennis ecosystem. You know, and that's that's one thing I've always thought, like, like Tim, as amazing as Tim is, where is he? We don't see him. You know, Greg was involved a little bit. You know, I really do hope that Andy stays in the game, Jamie stays in the game, Dan Evans stays in the game, Heather Watson stays in the game, Joanna Compass stays in the game, because that those that have that experience of playing at that level and know what it takes, those are the ones that then keep passing that down. And that very much happens in the Spanish the, the, the Spanish way. You know, those guys are still very, very much a big part of of what happens and passing that on. You know, like Rafa runs his own tournaments in, in Spain. And, and and the way that it's set is you turn up to the tournament, but there's then a couple of meetings. There's a meeting for parents, there's a meeting for players, and there's a meeting for coaches where they're educating them. You know, all of these values are stuck all over the all over the, the tournament. The the winner, the top seven players go to the masters, but the eighth player goes on who's the best sportsman, best attitude, and, and also that's judged on the best parents in terms of sportsmanship from parents and from coaches. And it's like the Rafa Prize. So these things are genuinely being kind of engrossed into the culture in Spain, not just putting your name to a tournament or putting your name to something. And and I, and I really do hope now we've got a, got a good few people coming through from Britain that that, that can happen in future as well, because I think it, it goes a long way. Yeah, I do, I do think one thing positive that I've, I've sort of seen, having been allowed into the NTC briefly for to look at a, one of these uh, British tour events, um, it looks to me like at the end they've spent quite a lot of money on the NTC in Roehampton. It does have a feel now a bit more of a centre of excellence. I mean, for, for many years it just felt like an office place with some tennis courts attached to it. Yeah, they've, they've kind of spruced it up, and I think certainly amongst the the men that, that there's quite a healthy kind of buzz that seems to be uh, around there. So you know, credit where it's due to the LTA on that one, I think. No, and I think Andy and Jamie are going to be spearheading that for years to come. I think they do a great job on it. And um, last last couple of things, Mike. What one thing? I two things I want to ask you. But firstly, for someone who's been Obviously, we look at we can all look at tennis through our different lenses. You know, I look at it from a, a, a coach who's an academy director, um, tennis players. We had a lot of players on the podcast. Look at it through their lens. You're looking at it from a different lens as a journalist who's going in, but who has a real good opinion and take on on the sport. How have you seen the sport of tennis change over the last ten or fifteen years, um, and where does it go next? Um, well, I think, I mean, I suppose a, a big difference, I think, that the technical stuff with the, the strings, I think, have had a quite a big influence on how players play. I mean, it, you would know this better than me, and I bow to your superior technical knowledge, but it almost looks like some players, it's almost impossible not to spin the ball in now, you know, with these... Um, with the, with the equipment that is at people's, um, so I, I, 
I slightly missed your question. Is it, is it kind of media-wise, technical-wise, or, or just, um, I, I just I think just really the game of tennis. You know, you you're looking at it from your your lens, your point of view. But are you seeing are you seeing the sport change? Have you seen big changes in the sport? Um, and yeah, I think that would be that would be my my question, really. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I'd go back to technically. I think you know equipment, strings, the way players play. You know, I think it's been a great era to be a sort of counterpunching baseliner yeah. type player. Um, I would I would like to see much more of a variance in court speed, so you get a different type of different types of players emerging yeah. rather than a, a group of clones. I think uh, that that would be very welcome. Media-wise, I think there's there's going to be a dip um, in terms of interest when, you know, the whole Roger, Rafa, Novak thing burns itself out, but then there'll be a sort of period of um, rebuilding in the women's game. Hopefully we will see, um, you know, the establishment of rivalries between players who can win multiple Grand Slams. I think that would be the big hope yeah. for the women's game. And in the men's game, we're going to have to wait and see some new kind of stars emerge, really, in the wake of these amazing handful that that, uh, uh, that we've had. And, and, you know, I go back to the... I mean, I don't want to drag Corona into this thing, but, I, you know, it's some tournaments are going to struggle. And I think, yeah. you know, some prize money is going to be lower. I think some the lower level you will see players leave the game altogether, possibly because they can't make ends meet. Yeah, yeah. Um, that will probably benefit the wealthier nations who can support their players. Yeah. So, like every sport, it's constantly evolving. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what about specifically sports journalism? You know, what's what's the future for that? Well, I mean, you know, this is a a perilous moment, really, I think, for the media in, in general. Um, you know, the sports journalism, you know, is internationally is quite expensive. And like every other business, it's going to come under more pressure in the next sort of three or four years. But I think generally in life, the, what the corona thing is going to do is, is accelerate trends that are all, were already in motion before this came around. Yeah. So I think you'll see the media become more atomized. Um, there'll probably be fewer media traveling to international events, I think, probably for money reasons as much as anything. Yeah. Um, and the competition between sports will become you know, even more intense. Football you know, is obviously way, way ahead. Yeah. And that is going to be people's priority. So it's, it's really important that, uh, you know, tennis kind of fights its corner, if you like, now, now more than ever to get media attention. Yeah. And what's the future for you, Mike Dixon? Well, I, I have no idea. <laughs> I honestly, I mean, you kind of, I tell you what, I'd be, if I say to young journalists, I'd, you know, I would recommend a career in journalism 100% of the time if you could have had been as lucky as, as I would have considered myself to have been. Um, I think the future for our business looks far less certain than it did when I came into it all those years ago. 
So I'm not trying to be a doomsayer because, you know, everyone adapts and businesses adapt. But, um, you know, I, 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 I'm not quite so wholehearted in recommending it as a career for someone aged sort of 20 now, possibly, as I might have been 10 years ago. But too late. But it's been a great career. Too late for you to change. Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> You've got to be adaptable to thrive. So, um, you know, I still feel there's a bit of life in the old dog yet, you know. No, well, well, thank you. I mean, uh, on behalf of the, we, we've got a quick fire round, but on behalf of the tennis world, a big thank you for, for not only today, but also the coverage you've given us over the last 30, 35 years, Mike. You know, it's, I know that I'm always very keen to, to read what you write. And, you know, I've always, I always like your take. I always think it's very interesting. And I, and I think you, having, having people like you in the world of tennis and certainly in the world of Brit British tennis is, is, is a massive positive, you know, to, to keep, keep fighting the good fight and, and getting our great sport out there. So a big thank you for that. Well, that's very kind of you to say. I'll, um, your, your check's in the post. <laughs> um, a quick fire round, Mike. The ATP Cup or the Davis Cup? Davis Cup. I knew that was coming. Again, I've researched you enough to know that you're a big Davis Cup lover. And, and, and I, just on a side note of that, what do you think of the new Davis Cup? Well, I worry, I worry for it, to be honest. I worry for the economics of it. Um, I actually thought it was quite a, quite a promising start last year, but um, they seem to be very keen to cancel it, or they were pretty hasty. They almost like they couldn't wait to cancel it this year. And, you, you know, I do think there are some underlying financial concerns about it. And, you know... It's a, I mean, to me, it's an amazing competition that has, you know, I've seen some incredible sport, you know, be right up there with sort of all the memories I've had. And, uh, you know, I hope it can survive this current stage of its in and it comes next year and they finally sort out the absurdity of having two team events within six weeks. Yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's crazy. Um, newspaper in person or newspaper online? Uh, do you mean what? what, what? Physical newspaper or online newspaper? Well, I, you know, without wanting to sit on the fence, I, I quite like both, but I think we have to face up to the fact the direction of travel clearly is towards uh, digital and online. But there again, you know, I was brought up with newspapers. I absolutely love them. And, don't underestimate, there's still a lot of people buy and read newspapers. Absolutely. So they, they've both got a place right now. Absolutely. In terms of a couple of tennis questions, injury timeout or not? Uh, well, they need to be tightened up considerably. And I actually, one thing I would quite like to see is possibly a limit on each player to how many they can have before they have to start paying for them. Um, or making a, a donation to a tour charity. So you could maybe say to a player, you can have X amount of free, free visits yeah, yeah. on court per season, but you go beyond the threshold, yeah. uh, and every time you come on, you pay 
four hundred dollars to the tour charity. Love it. That's what I'd like to see. I like it. I like it. U.S. Open or not, two thousand and twenty. Well, it could have changed by the time people listened to it. I'm leaning against the thing happening, but I hope it does. Five-minute warm-up or not before the match? No, it should be more like two minutes. And a joint ATP and WTA or not? I'd love to see it. I think it'd be a great idea. Um, reality, less than 50-50 it happening. But there could be some, some link-ups, but a full-scale link-up, I'm uh, just not sure that'll happen. And one rule that you would change in tennis? I think right now I like this thing I mentioned a bit earlier about... Um, i tell you a rule I would like to see. High breaks at five all. I think that would speed the game up and it wouldn't, it wouldn't dramatically alter the game and you could apply it to all tennis from Parks tennis to Grand Slam finals. I don't think it would damage the game, but I think it would bring it more in line with modern times. I think it's worth looking at anyway, off the top of my head. And more different speeds of court surface. I tell you what, Mike, it, you're our 43rd episode in the last three months, and you've managed to come up with some original answers to the quick fire round. So well done to you. Your, your brain's obviously a creative one. <laughs> Well, that's nice to hear. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time. It's been brilliant. Uh, and it's, so, it's so great to get that kind of, like I've said a couple of times, the view of tennis from a different lens. And, you know, and that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Different people will see it in different ways from the different positions that they're in. Um, and you've been fantastic, so thank you. That's a pleasure. Cheers, Dan. A big thank you to Mike Dixon. Uh, loved that episode. Loved talking to you, Mike. And, and I'm sure you guys enjoyed listening. Uh, it's great to see that, as I said on the podcast, through another lens and what great experiences that he shared with us. So thanks for that. Um, also, a big thank you to all of you for listening and, and also for the, for the messages that we've been receiving. Myself and John are overwhelmed with all the, the, the amazing messages really pleased to hear that mental health awareness week has gone down so well uh, it is an emotive topic and it's a topic that we need to get out there more um, so please keep sharing all episodes um, as we always say this is this is not something we're not asking for anything to do this other than just spend a minute to share with somebody share with a friend a family member and and also on the itunes app just scroll down Give us a little rating and if you get a chance to, to write a review, just so this fantastic knowledge can get out there far and wide, it really helps. Um, so a big, big thank you and we've got lots more exciting guests coming your way over the next few weeks. I'm Dan Kiernan, my co-host is John McGann and we are Control the Controllables. <laughs>